0: Paul Sweeney here with Alex Steele sitting in for Lisa Abramowitz. Market Drivers today is brought to you by Marks Paneth LLP. Marks Paneth, tax advisors have helped family businesses reach their financial goals for over 100 years. At Marks Paneth, success is personal. Learn more at MarksPaneth.com slash tax. Also today, Alex, is uh, International Women's Day. We're celebrating with an all-female cast during the show You're today. like the
2: outlier right I now. I know, I am
0: the outlier. You're like the
2: random guy who's Thank you on the for show. allowing
0: me to be here <laughs> to ruin the whole setup here, but... Obviously, a big day today, Jobs Day, the 20,000 uh, job print really taking the market by surprise. Let's dig into that a little bit along with some other macro issues. We're fortunate to have uh, Alicia Levine with us. Alicia is a chief market strategist at BNY Mellon Investment Management. She joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Alicia, welcome. Thanks for coming here. Hi, good morning. Wow. Uh, $20,000 uh, 20, uh, uh, job number, not much impact in the bond market, but certainly the equity market seemed a little rattled. What do you make of it?
3: I think it was a a noisy month, and it's the month coming coming after the shutdown. I don't really take too much stock in one month data. But the interesting thing about the job market is that you can actually get a rapid turn. So if you see a second month like this, then I'd start to worry. I'd like to point out one thing, which is the labor participation rate, which has risen half a percentage point over the last 12 months. This is phenomenal, and since it's International Women's Day, I just want to point out that it's driven by women in the US getting back into the labor force. We have higher wages, we have better jobs, we have such a wonderful job market out there. I think it's terrific that women are getting back into the labor force, and we should celebrate that today.
2: I'd like to see the wage, though, on those jobs that they're getting into.
3: Which well, that's I mean, an interesting thing. I'll tell you this about different the, story. The wage, <laughs> so the wage number is actually pretty optimistic because you know we saw it was up four tenths for the month, and then year over the year three and a three point four percent, which is the best it's been in many many years. The interesting thing about where the wage gains are is really at the bottom quintile of the earning spectrum. And the bottom quintile of the earnings spectrum spends its earnings. They don't save; they spend because they have needs that need to be met. So this is actually terrific. And I'm not. I, I suspect that we, wages are going up everywhere. And so women re-entering the workforce should be beneficiaries of that.
0: So is your sense that okay? So we had generally a, a good jobs market. Let's take this as a little bit of a one-off here. Is your sense that the economy is still generally looking at a two, two and a half percent type of range? And, and you're, you're recession risk is a little bit off the table at this point
3: our recession risk is definitely off the table the economy does look like it's generating two to two and a half percent i'll say this about the first quarter this looks like to be the kitchen sink first quarter all the bad news is coming out in the first quarter G- first quarter gdp print so we have bad weather we have the effects of the shutdown we also have the effects of the twenty percent equity sell-off In the fourth quarter of last year which i'm sure dampened animal spirits a little bit in the following quarter so this is our kitchen sink quarter it's coming in somewhere between one to one and a half percent which means the rest of the year really has to make up for that to get to your two to two and a half percent growth rate we think the economy is pretty strong
2: so the interesting thing to me is the market reaction today so we saw hardly any move in the bond market a teeny bit in the dollar but the equity downturn feels sticky and so that leads me to wonder if it's not about the jobs market at all like how much of the market action do you feel like is the ecb like coming out guns blazing yesterday and then the worries about china trade data overnight versus a us
3: so i don't think the jobs data is what's rattling the market and if you think about the total market since the beginning of 2019 the bond market was telling you a very different story than from what the equity market's been telling you. And it's interesting because as an equity person, I like to say, well, the bond market's always right. Mm -hmm. And the bond market was telling you that there just is no lift in the inflation or a larger bump to growth globally. I think the reason that the market sold up so much on Mario Draghi's comments yesterday is that Draghi and the ECB has always seemed to be behind the data curve. So responding to terrible data and the fact that he seemed that he came in before the terrible data actually happened, there was some question about whether he knew more than he really really was saying and perhaps it's worse than we think. And I'll give you one scenario where it really could be worse than we think and that is is talking about those 301 tariffs on German automobiles. However, there just,
0: was- Just give us a quick summary. What is that tariff and how important is
3: it? So the thing about the 301, the 232 tariffs, which were the steel tariffs, and the 301 tariffs, which were the auto tariffs, are tariffs that are completely controlled by the administration. Okay. So Congress has yep. no say in it. And this is an area where the, where the administration can really drive policy. So they, they had a study about whether or not Uh, tariffs, whether there have been fair trade practices and whether there's some national security issue at stake, should the administration put tariffs on European automobiles. So the report came out at the end of February, but it was held close to the vest. The law is it must be released within 90 days. That 90 days is mid to end of May. So I believe that the administration feels that its implementation of tariffs has been very successful in renegotiating trade deals, and that's why I think we're gonna see tariffs on German automobiles. Now, that's gonna kill the German economy and the European economy.
2: So to that point, uh, Bloomberg Economics said a 25% auto tariff on European cars puts $30 billion of European GDP at risk.
0: Wow, that's Ouchie. a number. That's a big number. Alicia Levine, thank you so much for joining us. Alicia is a chief market strategist for BNY Mellon Investment Management. She joined us live here in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Coming up, we're going to pivot and take a look at the energy markets, see what's happening in Venezuela, Saudi Aramco. Uh, lots of to do on uh, the energy space as well. It's not just about jobs. Energy is also critical here going forward. This is Bloomberg. Well, the equity markets aren't the only ones that have experienced extraordinary volatility over the last, let's say, three or four months. The global oil market also has been quite volatile. And you take a look at uh, Brent crude, for example. The good news is it's up about 30 percent from its uh, December lows. But the bad news is it's still down about 25 percent from its October highs. Try to get a sense of where the next move might be for global oil. Let's welcome our next guest, Dr. Ellen Wald. Uh, Dr. Wald is a president of Transversal Consulting. Uh, She is also the non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Global Energy Center, and she's also a contributor to Bloomberg Opinion. Dr. Wald, uh, welcome. Um, Wondered if, given the volatility we have seen in global oil uh, over the last several months, what is your outlook for oil for the remainder of the year?
4: You know, I think that right now we're kind of in a bit of a holding pattern, waiting to see what happens, uh, particularly as we head into April and May, and then also into the summer driving season in the U.S. A lot right now, in terms of where oil is going to end up, depends on uh, political moves, particularly by the White House. The oil sanctions on Venezuela came as kind of a surprise, and now we're waiting to see what's going to happen in May with the Iran sanctions that could potentially. Potentially remove another uh, million uh, barrels a day from the market. So, if the president decides that they want to zero out Iranian oil exports, then that could have a significant Um, That could actually provide a significant lift on oil prices, but if they decide not to do that, then it's entirely possible that we could see oil prices trending lower. Then on the other side of the equation, we've got demand, and we've seen from OPEC, from the EIA, from the IEA, all uh, of them have been cutting their forecasts for demand growth uh, as we go uh, forward into 2019 and into 2020, So right now, though, we're really waiting to see whether that actually does pan out. And I think that the summer driving season and uh, gasoline demand and jet fuel demand uh, as well are going to be important indicators for where we're heading in the second half of 2019 and into 2020.
2: So if you sort of weigh the Venezuela sanctions and Iranian sanctions and looking ahead to the waivers and stuff, literally, what's the oil price that President Trump makes his decision at?
4: Well, that's that's a really good question. He certainly seems to get kind of antsy when oil prices head upwards, um, I would say maybe in the, in the $60 barrel range for WTI and uh, $70 barrel range for Brent. But I do also think that his decision really uh, depends more on gasoline prices. And we're, we generally see higher gasoline prices in the summer. Uh, we produce a slightly more expensive blend of gasoline that we use. Uh, and I'm not sure the president is necessarily going to take those variations into account but he definitely gets uh, gets anxious when prices get you know above that that marker and so i do think that and it also depends on how long these venezuela sanctions continue for i think that the the calculus probably was that they would be done by now And uh, this problem in Venezuela is really becoming more of a long-term rather than a short-term issue. And I wouldn't be surprised if we see even greater crackdowns on the financial institutions that India and uh, China are using to facilitate purchases of Venezuelan oil. Uh, That could also uh, play a role and could possibly drive up oil prices higher as well. So.
2: How, what's it like doing business right now in Venezuela? Because when you ask the companies, the standard line is like, we will make sure to cooperate with any kind of sanctions that come through, and we're talking to the US government. Like That's what you're going to hear, right? What's the reality?
4: The reality is that things are a lot more complicated, and a lot of it does also depend on the personal relationships between, uh, you know, Venezuela, between the Maduro government and some of these companies, uh, particularly the Russian ones and the Chinese ones, that have lent Venezuela a lot of money. Their concern here is that uh, it's not just buying oil. China isn't just uh, invested in a situation as a source of petroleum. They've also lent a great deal of money to Venezuela, and they want Uh, they want to get that money back, and they want to get the interest payments on that. So they're going to be doing everything they can to make sure that that's facilitated.
0: So, Dr. Wald, I know you're also the author of uh, a book entitled Saudi Inc., uh, which kind of looks at the whole Saudi Aramco issue and the family and so on and so forth. So I need to ask my uh, Aramco IPO question. what's that
2: question? (laughs) Now I'm excited.
0: When is it going to happen? Is it going to happen? When is it going to happen? And kind of what are the drivers here?
4: You know, that's a really great question, especially because we just saw uh, the other day that the Saudi oil minister again made a statement saying the IPO is going to happen in another two
3: years and
4: right now, they're still uh, facilitating or, or they're still going about their acquisition of the petrochemical giant, Sabic, which has really pushed off any kind of IPO move for, for quite some time. And I do think that the IPO schedule uh, definitely depends on this, this acquisition. Right now, uh, I think what's going into the calculus are, can they get the valuation that they want? Yeah. And they may not be able to do that unless the company grows some more. And so, so I wouldn't be surprised if that uh, two-year timetable be- could become three or four years, depending on uh, how, how fast they can grow. Yeah. Uh, another calculus here is um, what's going on between the Saudi government and the Saudi oil ministry and Aramco. And the Saudi government is looking to basically kind of cash in on this IPO to fund their public investment right. fund, their their sovereign wealth fund. And right now they don't have the amount of money that they're looking for by buying SABIC. From the PIF, however, the Sovereign Wealth Fund will get more money, and so they may be more satisfied and willing to um, hold off on the IPO until, as the Saudis always say, conditions are optimal.
2: Well, you know, talk about that for a second, because IP week, uh, Saudi Ramco, a CEO, he seemed pretty upset. He was definitely like, investors don't buy our industry, they're writing us off for dead, and that's not true, there's going to be a supply gap. To me, that sounded like a CEO that wasn't able to market an IPO.
4: Yeah, they definitely ran into some issues marketing the IPO uh, and marketing the company. But I do think a lot of that has to do with um, a lot of misunderstandings that are perpetuated about Aramco and particularly about Saudi Arabia's uh, oil and its oil reserves. And so I can understand his frustration there. Uh, There's a lot of misinformation out there.
0: Dr. Ellen Wald, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Uh, Dr. Wald is a president uh, of Transversal Consulting, non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Global Energy Center, and also contributor to Bloomberg Opinion. So what is your sense of this IPO, Alex? Is this happen no. in our lifetime?
2: No, Maybe in our <laughs> lifetime. I don't know. I'm going to Sarah Week next week. I'm talking to 12 energy CEOs, so I'll let you know. I'll get back Excellent. to you on Wednesday. <laughs> I'm just I'm
0: just speaking for all the energy uh, investment bankers out there uh, who are waiting for what was going to be a monster payday for them, and they still hope so. Taking a look at a West Texas Intermediate crude right here, $55 down a little bit, down about two and a half percent today. This is Bloomberg. Just crossing the uh, Bloomberg terminal right now is uh, news that ex uh, Fox executive Bill Shine resigning from the White House, according to uh, Sarah uh, Huckabee Sanders. Uh, so that is a relatively short uh, tenure for uh, Mr. Shine as he uh, came to the White House from uh, the news corporation 21st Century Fox. So uh, just crossing the headlines right now. Uh, but thinking about the jobs data, clearly not uh, well received by the equity markets, continue to be a little bit weak there, but absolutely a complete yawner from the fixed income markets. I'm looking at the 10-year treasury, literally unchanged on my Bloomberg screen, yielding 2.64%. So to help us kind of dig into uh, the bond market and all things fixed income, we welcome back our friend Kathleen Gaffney. Kathleen is co-director of Diversified Fixed Income at Eaton Vance. Eaton Vance has over $400 billion under management, about $80 billion of which is in fixed income. Uh, Kathleen's based in Boston, but she joins us today in our Bloomberg 1130 studios in New York. I feel like you're here as often here as you are in in uh, uh, Boston, I'm sure you've got lots of travels. Uh, so what did you make, Kathleen, coming out of this jobs number? Obviously, it's kind of a strange number, but what's your takeaway?
1: Yeah, de- it definitely was a strange number and not something that I would extrapolate, although clearly the market, especially equities, are thinking more about lower growth. Uh, that's the pattern that we've heard in Europe as well. But it was interesting that wages uh, are increasing, and I've got my eyes on what's going on with inflation, and that's what I think bond investors need to be wary of. Was that
0: was the inflation number okay? Or we're we not we're not going too fast, are we?
1: No, we're not going fast enough. But okay. just just the increase in wages, uh, we know that we've got a tight labor market, so that's going to be some sort of pressure. And there is stimulus out there the, with the Fed on pause. Uh, that's still accommodative policy. And China is also providing stimulus. So I wouldn't read too much into one, one uh, data point.
2: Does the 10-year at 2.63% and the 10-year at 6 basis points, do those two numbers make sense to you?
1: They make sense in a world where their inflation is going to remain low for a very long time. But we're hearing, and it'll be interesting to hear what Powell has to say, but the Fed is starting to think about how anchored investors' expectations are, and that it, it seems that it is very hard to get anyone to believe that there could be momentum higher, which means they are likely to start using the average inflation target and let it go a little bit higher. And wages moving up is one piece of that.
2: Okay. Oh, we sorry. just have
1: moved up. No, I was going to yeah. say
2: that they yeah. have moved up here. They've moved up uh, in Europe as well, Paul. In fact, like if you're going to look at green shoots, like that's one of them. Even dare I say in Europe.
0: <laughs> so, Kathleen, you know, on the European issue, we had some very dour commentary coming out of Mario Draghi yesterday in the ECB. Kind of what what is your takeaway from what you heard yesterday out of Europe? How concerned are you?
1: I'm I'm somewhat concerned. Uh, And and Europe is definitely uh, really slow to react, and the the ability to get more growth is hampering uh, policy. And so they're in a a really tough place. Um, But I I do think that much of that is due to the uncertainty around the globe, uh, due to Brexit and also due to concerns about China, Uh, Germany. exports a lot to China and so I think they feel that. Uh, I do think that the uncertainty is going to be resolved uh, with the US-China relations and I think with the China stimulus that's coming, I think that's positive, but it probably isn't something that we're going to see until later this year. So for now, we're really stuck in the pause mode and limbo mode until we see more positive economic data. But the market keeps flipping from one side to the other without making a whole lot of progress. Um, Focusing on inflation and letting it run will impact the dollar, and a lower dollar helps to get growth going.
2: So here's what I just really struggle to understand, is that growth isn't horrible. No. Like we're not going to recession, right? Yet I'm gonna point out again, six basis points for the German 10 year bund. But then you go into the fact that we might have a China trade deal, for example, the data is not terrible, the market's pricing in like rate cuts this year uh, from the Fed, uh, ECB rate hike is now out until like now the back half of 2020 in terms of what the market's telling you. So to me, anything is gonna be better than what the markets are thinking. Yes. So aren't we gonna have to have some kind of showdown here where the markets have to play catch up and then there's gonna be some volatility or some unwind like is that a thing we're gonna have to focus on?
1: Yes. But I, I just don't know when it's going to happen. It feels like it's not going to happen until later this year. But that is exactly what I would want to be prepared for. That's the, biggest, that's the biggest risk. And the Fed really does want to get rates up, but they just don't have the ability to move. So a weaker dollar is a great way to solve that equation, because they don't have to lower, and they can take their time raising.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. We're looking at the dollar. I've been you know, talking to folks. I just don't see what against which currencies it will depreciate. I mean, it's just, you know, you look around the world. I mean, it's just the dollar. That's a good point. You know, I, I just you don't see it. You have, you know, the weakness, obviously, in Europe that we heard about yesterday. We have China. We're not really sure where, where they are. Um, so it's interesting. But I think as a U.S. economy, um, we've had a couple of guests on today. One was kind of calling for a recession in 2020. One was saying no. Any sense of kind of where, where you think that's going to play out?
1: I do think that the fundamentals are, are good enough that we're not close to a point where we're, we're going to be at recession. Um, leverage has been picking up, but it's still relatively modest. Uh, so I think a recession is much further out. It is more the volatility that as expectations um, start to get lifted, you'll he- you'll see the volatility in the credit markets because they've been pulled higher in price, lower in yield, because of that appetite for yield when we're stuck in, uh, at a pause and, and limbo.
2: Uh, what is your strongest conviction trade right now?
1: Uh, EM currency. So to, to Paul's question, I think that's what the dollar uh, will be weaker against, is China, you are seeing the yuan move up. They're, all signals are that they want stability and consumption.
0: Interesting, Kathleen. Thank you so much for joining us. There's always a lot to talk about, particularly after uh, on a on a Jobs Friday. Kat- Kathleen Gaffney, Kathleen's co-director of diversified fixed income at Eaton Vance. Uh, they manage over 400 billion dollars, and she joins us here in our Bloomberg 11:30 studios. Thank you so much, Alex. Thank you for uh, joining, sitting in today, Jeff. Fun on radio. It was a
2: pleasure. Yeah, I do. I get to just you do all the heavy lifting. I just hang out here and talk. I Good. mean, it's, it's awesome. <laughs> it's, it's my husband's nightmare.
0: <laughs> exactly. Uh, Alex was <laughs> kind enough to sit in for Lisa Abramowitz. Uh, coming up on. Bloomberg Radio is politics, policy, power, and law uh, with June Grasso. June, what are you looking at today?
1: Well, we're going to have a live interview with Nancy Pelosi. And of course, we're going to look at the Manafort sentencing and the jobs
0: numbers. Excellent. Excellent. Looking here at the market, still down a little bit today on the equity markets, but generally very strong. I'm Paul Sweeney, and along with my sit-in co-host, Alex Steele, this is Bloomberg.
1: Now on Bloomberg Markets, news in focus
0: focus on munis is brought to you by build america mutual bam green star bonds finance projects that protect and restore the environment with more renewable energy and efficient transportation and buildings visit buildamerica.com slash green bam building america well there is a growing i'll call it chatter within congress to repeal the ten thousand dollar cap on deductions for state and local taxes, or salt, uh, to use their vernacular, uh, to get an update on this and all things Muni. Let's welcome once again, Amanda Albright. Amanda is the A municipal bond reporter for Bloomberg News. She joins us uh, here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker studio. Amanda, welcome again. Um, is there any chance that this issue with the state and local taxes can get any movement in Congress?
5: So as that story outlines um, by Joe uh, Light, uh, it doesn't look like the, it, there will be any traction made on that proposal. Both Republicans and Democrats have their own reasons for not supporting the um you know, change to that. And for muni investors, um, they might be looking at all the cash coming in and saying, well, maybe we don't mind the, the the cap on salt deductions because it's led to just tremendous demand for municipal bonds as people, you know, seek out tax havens. Um, and so that's something that's really propped up performance this year for the muni market
2: have you noticed after sort of a a couple years of dealing with this um the difference in say say states like connecticut because i gotta tell you like so many guys in the industry that i talk to are like yeah 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 i live in connecticut and they really don't they're residents in florida but like they actually live in
5: connecticut (laughs) right so we talked to a financial advisor um this week about just the salt driven demand for munis and she was saying that um she is definitely hearing from more clients who are worried about taxes and just that's becoming more part of the calculus for them she was basically saying that no one that she she works with ever retires to New Jersey they're retiring from New Jersey and leaving Um, and she basically says she has clients from all over the U.S. um, that have previously lived in New Jersey and maybe taxes weren't the only reason why they left but it certainly wasn't something that kept them there
0: interesting well interesting we as a resident of new jersey this is near and dear (laughs) to my heart but another issue is interesting for the state of new jersey is uh new jersey governor phil murphy who will be on bloomberg radio and television today uh in the four o'clock hour which we should mention uh but he released the state budget's 38.6 billion dollar budget uh in there on the revenue line was taxes supposedly going to come from cannabis legalized weed uh something along the order of 300 or 350 million dollars but they're actually coming in much less what's going on there
5: Right, so Murphy's budget um, only estimated that it could raise 60 million from cannabis taxes, which haven't been legalized yet, I should add. Um, so before he was estimating that this could be something that could raise $300 million a year. Um, but now it's kind of you know, a reality check for New Jersey and other states. Um, New York is also talking about legalizing marijuana, um, which you know is a competitor to any legalized um, marijuana in New Jersey. Um, there's also this issue of the black market and people who already were getting their marijuana from from one source and will they actually go and pay taxes on a source that they weren't you know previously paying taxes on but it just highlights
2: to me kind of the desperate measures that some states are kind of grappling at so it's not only you know taxing pot I'm gonna say pot is that okay am I dating yeah. myself if I pot? okay a <laughs> um, okay oopsie uh, so um then but then there's also the proposal in New York right that if you have a condo and you don't live there and you rent it that then you gotta get taxed on that I mean like are these and do investors like these kind of proposals
5: when it comes to the muni market? That's a great point. And I think um, I would put marijuana taxes up there with like cigarette taxes and gasoline taxes as being these kind of imperfect revenue sources um, for various reasons. So cigarette taxes, um, the more that you tax cigarettes, the more consumption declines. So that's kind of an imperfect revenue source. But it's one that states, especially um, states where there's a lot of anti-tax sentiment, well, they view those as easy to raise because it's a, it's a sin tax. Um, and then with gas taxes, you know, there's a lot of talk about electricity. Electric vehicles hy- hybrid cars you know how reliable is gas tax money going to be in 30 years which is kind of the time frame mm-hmm. that states are working with so I think for marijuana taxes it has its own sort of issues um, but it is something that you know like we saw with the MTA last week um, it's an easy you know tax that lawmakers can propose it's easier to you know float that than it is to say I'm gonna raise your income taxes by 1% or something so how
0: about with, with some other states I'm thinking Colorado and some others that ha- have had legalized marijuana they had similar tax shortfall issues or are they doing a little bit better
5: so it's more of like a a nice to have for a state like colorado which is you know a really strong credit there's like tons of people moving in um this is not something that we're seeing any state kind of build their their budget around it's still a very small percentage of their you know overall general fund um you know they're working with billions of dollars and you know marijuana tax money right now just isn't enough to kind of make or break a state credit uh what is the most popular muni market right now as an investment? Yeah. Um, I would probably say New York and California are up there. Um, maybe even more of an extent New York because the spreads on the state's debt have just tightened so dramatically um, during this, like, season of salt demand and all that. Is that a, yeah, I was going to say, is that supply or demand issue? It's a little bit of both. So there is really, really strong demand, but um, supply is not yet, you know outweighing the amount of reinvestment money that we're seeing coming in we're also seeing lots of cash new cash coming into muni mutual funds and um, even muni etfs this week they attracted um, you know money Um, so it is a supply and demand Dynamic, and I think people are kind of worried about what happens if the demand runs out, but no one is actually calling for that to happen. They think this salt right. dynamic is only going to get worse after people, you know, finish doing their taxes. Great.
0: Yeah, exactly. Tax season. Here we go. I'm avoiding it. It's not. Yes. Happening. Amanda Albright, municipal bond reporter for Bloomberg News.
1: Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast.
0: You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox.
1: I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz 1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.